0: Which you can find on page 1192 in the Church Bible is taken from the first letter to Timothy, reading chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, and then chapter 4, verses 9 to 16. On page 1192, qualifications for overseers and deacons. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, but not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Jesus Christ. And now continuing with chapter 4 from verse 9. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the savior of all people and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come... Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy, when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and and your hearers this is the word of the lord
1: let's um let's pray Lord, may the words that I speak and the thoughts of all our hearts be now and always acceptable to you, O Lord, our God and our Redeemer. Amen. You may wonder why I'm wearing this. Because we don't in this church have a tradition of wearing robes. Yet our passage is all about uh, those set aside for ordained ministry and those set aside to be deacons. I'm going to come back to that later on, and indeed to that. But in the meantime, if anyone wants a copy of the, uh, of the main notes I'm going through, there's some there at the front. I'm going to be looking at this under three different headings, which is, first of all, a worthy saying, then a worthy standard, and then a worthy service. So you're going to need your Bibles open at page 1192, um, though we will obviously dip elsewhere as well, as usual. So, a worthy saying, a worthy, a trustworthy saying. Paul uses these words five times in the pastoral epistles that is, in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And so the first one we had in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, where Christ came to save sinners. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst says Paul the Apostle. The second one we've got is at the start of our passage, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be a no, an overseer desires a noble task. The third one we've got comes in our, our, the second portion of our passage, uh, which is uh, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 8 to 10, although verse 9 is the one which, uh, which features the words. Um, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Okay? And there's going to be a, a separate sermon in two weeks' time on that, so we're not going to get into that. we um, just noting it as we go. And then there are two other worthy sayings in 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 to 13, that he remains faithful Here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And then finally, in Titus 3, verses 1 to 8, we are saved by grace. Now what? But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. So this is what Paul's talking about when he's talking about a trustworthy saying, a worthy saying. It's something which, if you look at it from the outside, in many ways should be self-evident. It should be an axiom. That a, a truth which can be seen to be the case. So these five that Paul says, Christ came to save sinners, that the job that the that looking to be an overseer uh, is a noble task, the value of godliness, that he, Christ, remains faithful, and that we're saved by grace. So now what? So that's the start of our passage, that we've got this worthy saying. We, of course, are focusing mainly on the, uh, on the list of, uh, uh, that we have for the overseers and the deacons, and separately the list that's given to Timothy in chapter 4. And so in chapter 4, verse 10, we're told this is why we labor, because we've put our hope in the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is a worthy saying. Those who aspire to be overseers are setting out upon a noble task. But this is why we labor, labor, a worthy saying, because God is living. And it is in him whom we believe. And so then Paul sets out the standard for overseers and deacons. Now, when we look at this passage and we see overseers and deacons, and we go... um, We can, look at, um, we can look at what Cranmer wrote in, um, uh, in the opening to the, uh, 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 to the BCP. It is evident unto all men diligently reading Holy Scripture and ancient authors that from the Apostles' time there have been these orders of ministers in Christ's Church, bishops, priests, and deacons. Thus begins the preface to the Ordinal of the Church of England, which still remains one of our foundational formularies, and thus, by extension, one of the defining documents of the Anglican Communion. So that's the standard that we currently look to. Now, there was a, an Anglican bishop called um, uh, J.B. Lightfoot who, uh, who did a study uh, back in the 1800s uh, which showed that, in fact, the word that we use as bishop, uh, the one which comes from episcopi, and the word that we use for priest, which comes from the word presbyter, are in fact one and the same. So the overseer that we see in our passage is a sort of priest, bishop, a presbyter, episcopi. They're two different words for the same function, and you can see this. Um, you can see this elsewhere. So nobody doubted that bishops had existed in the second century and some were prepared to concede that their office might be of apostolic origin. But whether might be said about that, the issue in dispute was whether bishops were prescribed by the New Testament as necessary, as a necessary ingredient to church government. As far as the three distinct orders were concerned, Cranmer clearly believed that they could be found in scripture, and he therefore saw no reason to modify the status quo in the Church of England. But he made no effort to support this from scripture. Cramer's somewhat cautious appeal to history has allowed his approach to survive more recent critical study, which has generally rejected the Roman Catholic and to some extent also Orthodox and Anglo-Catholic theory of a direct apostolic succession of bishops. Now, that's what Gerald Bray writes about, uh, about this. It's sometimes been argued that Presbyter, presbyter the presbyteri, represented the legalistic inheritance from the Jewish Christians because the the title comes from uh, the the one which would be used in the synagogues so when you uh, the person who was the senior person would be would be identified as the presbyter whereas the episcopi moved in the Pauline freedom of the spirit because it comes from the Greek and certainly the Greek churches had a uh, had an affinity for Presbyterianism to a much later extent than they did elsewhere. It's also true to say that in the pastoral epistles, Timothy and Titus are presented in roles analogous to that of a bishop, although not the same as we would know a bishop to be now. But Whether these assignments were temporary or permanent, we can't say. Uh, Titus is sent to, t- to Crete. Is it to be permanently a, an overseer there or just to set things in order? Timothy, in our passage, is given instructions as to how he's to, to manage the church, how he's to, to appoint pastors, and yet there's a, a temporiness to it as well. Now, you might wonder why we're looking at, at all these things, when, when in fact the, the list of, of qualities which are in there are probably applicable to most of us if we're looking to be in Christian leadership. And the answer to that is yes, they are. That's exactly what they are. They are applicable to all of us if we're looking to be in Christian leadership, if we're looking to be acting out as Christians, because they set a worthy standard. The presbyter, the overseer, the episcopi, are all set against this standard. So when we look at them, we are to measure them against this standard and see, are they performing against this standard. Now, you could argue that perhaps some of these, some parts of this standard are not as strenuous as they might be. Other parts, when you hold yourself up against them, you might find that you fall. I know that I certainly do, if I hold myself up against some parts. So, we have a standard that's established. And so, in Chapter 3, verse 2, you'll see that they are to be hospitable, they are to be gentle, they're to be not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. We can see that there's some crossover as well between the the overseer and the deacon, for both are to be faithful in marriage. They're able to manage their family, they're of a good reputation both within the church and outside of the church they're worthy of respect they're dignified and then under the character we see some some differences in those of the deacons that they are to be sincere does that mean the overseer is not to be sincere presumably not we would hope that we're not appointing overseers who are not sincere that the deacons are to not be pursuing dishonest gain Again, that's not something which is asked of the overseers. Presumably, this is because the expectation is that you would be paying your overseer, but not necessarily paying your deacon. That the, the standards for the deacons, in verse 9, they are to keep the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience and to be faithful to the deep truths. They are to be trustworthy in everything, not malicious talkers. And they, in verse ten of chapter three, must be tested in this. You must hold them up against this standard, and only if they meet this standard, are they to be permitted to serve. Going back to the uh, to the overseers, there are qualifications that that they are to meet. They are to be able to to teach. They are not to be a recent convert. Why is it important that they're not to be a recent convert? We're told in the passage it's so that they, um, so they will not become conceited and fall into the trap of the devil. But it's, it's as much as anything so that we have somebody who is rooted and grounded in their Christian faith, who knows what they're talking about and can do so with maturity. And there will be many Christians among us who are rooted and grounded in their faith and yet will never be called to be overseers. And then they should be above reproach in verse 2. Self-controlled, not violent. And again, then some which cross over the deacon's standards, they're to be temperate in verses 2 and 11, respectable in verses 2 and 11, and in verse 3 and verse 8, not given to drunkenness or indulging in much wine. Most of these things can be seen as moral um, and character uh, aspects. But there are a couple of qualifications in there as well, as we said. So they must, be able to be, uh, they must be able to teach. They must not be a recent convert. And they must be tested. Now, elsewhere, Peter will tell us um, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 5 to 9... You also are like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that causes them to fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So really, we don't need to have special robes or uniforms that designate us as Christians. I mean, don't get me wrong, we can can wear something that identifies us as Christian if we want, um, and it will perhaps help in our witness, but there is nothing that we need to wear to identify us as Christians because we are a priesthood of royal believers, a priesthood, a chosen people, And so, the qualities which are set out, that worthy standard which is set out for the overseers and for the deacons, is as much applicable to you and I. So, how do we match ourselves up against that standard? Are we hospitable? Are we gentle? Are we not quarrelsome? What is it that motivates us? Is it a love of money? Is it love of status? Or is it trying to get that message out to people that they can be saved because God himself came down into the world to save them? And that it's nothing to do with what they can do because it's all been done for them already. Yes, we're all called to be faithful in marriage. To be the one husband of one wife. And you know our passage does raise some interesting questions for, for those who believe in a, it, that, that the priesthood is open to all. Uh, there are headship issues there. If you want to look into that in further detail, um, I suggest you have a look at um, Gerald Bray's essay. Uh, he will eloquently uh, argue about that, and you can, you can form your own opinions. But we, we are in a church where that has already become the accepted norm now. That that ministry, although it is set out quite clearly in uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, that it is he, he, he. That ministry is open to all. Because elsewhere we will see that Paul lays out a creation order. God the Father, God the Son, man and woman. But the gap between God the Father and God the Son is so immeasurably different than that between God the Father and the Son. So, the gap between God the Father and the Son and man is so immeasurably different than that between God the Father and God the Son and man and woman. So, although there is this created order, it almost seems bizarre that Paul pushes these together in 1 Corinthians because Surely the gap is too large for us to, to be able to bridge it. And we can't. It's only through Christ that we can. It's only through Christ's death upon the cross that we can do any of this. For in our nature, we are sinful. As indeed Paul said in his first trustworthy saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I'm fairly sure we could think of worse sinners than Paul. But that's not how he sees it, for he sees his own sin. And that might not be how you see it when you look at your life, because it's your sin that you need to focus on, not other people's. Moving into chapter four, and partially staying in chapter three as well, we have a worthy service. So, Timothy has been given all these different standards that will apply to, to overseers and this, this idea that it is a noble task that some will seek out to become overseers, whether that's in the local house group or the local church, whether that's wider, whether it's being an international speaker and evangelist, whether it's being a missionary or whether it's just witnessing to their friends and neighbors. It is a noble task to be held up against a worthy standard. But a worthy service also exists. So the deacons are called to serve, as we are called to serve. The one who we can identify most with that is, of course, Christ himself. He comes into the world, he identifies himself as a deacon. At the Last Supper, he takes off his robes, puts a towel around his waist, and washes and dries everybody's feet the lowliest job of all. During his lifetime, when he's meeting with people, he is meeting with people and saying to them, I'm eating, I, I, he eats with the people who everyone else will not eat with. He associates with the people who no one else will associate with. And he doesn't make himself sinful by doing so. Instead, his righteousness becomes contagious. And they get a little bit of that righteousness, just by touching his robe in some cases. It's contagious. Is that the way we're living? That we're going to have a contagious faith, a standard that others look to and say, what is it that they've got? What is it that makes them stand up in that way? Stand up and be counted, but stand in a worthy way as well. A worthy service. Verse 10, for the deacons, it says, let them serve. And then in verse 12, it says, those who serve will gain both an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith. That's surely what we're called to do. So that when we get to see Christ at the end, he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. That is the reward that we should be seeking for. That is what we should be putting our efforts into. Not being lovers of money, nor lovers of status. This is why we labor, verse 10. Because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. And so Timothy is given some helpful ways in which his service can be shown out in the community of which he is an overseer. He's, first of all, told to silence the criticism. That might seem an odd thing to be told, given that you know, we're, we're, we think that Christians are too tolerant. but he's told to silence the criticism, to teach and to command, verses 11, 12, and 14. Don't let others look down on you because, due to your age. Timothy, we, we think he's probably in his, uh, in his early to late 30s, I mean, in today's society, I wouldn't actually say that's that young. Even in that society, I wouldn't have said it was. Jesus is thought to be 33 when he dies. And yet Timothy is here being referred to as being young. And then Paul tells him, do not neglect your gift given you through prophecy by the laying on of the hands of the elders. He's been set aside for this purpose. Like the priests of old... In the Levitical tribe, when God takes them and sets aside an entire tribe of Israel to be his own. And that has been opened up to us in being a royal priesthood. He's to set an example of chapter 4, verse 12 in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. It's quite an exacting standard. That others will be able to look to him and see, what is it that I should be doing? How should I be living? In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. He's to set an example. How is he to do that? Well, in verse 13, we're told that he's to do it through the public reading of scriptures. At a time when many people couldn't read it was all the more important that those who could are there reading the scriptures. But actually, you know, how often do we not do that ourselves? In our private readings, or indeed in our public readings? I, was, uh, I had the great privilege of being part of, a, of an entire Bible read-through in London, uh, all some ten, uh, nine or ten years ago. They all sort of blur, don't they, as, as you get older. Um, yes, you, know, you can laugh, Gordon. I am getting older. Um, <laughs> on an aside, Spurgeon, aged twenty-one, was uh, appointed as the, uh, the the minister of a large Baptist church. And uh, this uh, this woman comes up to him afterwards and says, "Oh, Mister Spurgeon, your words do do me some good, but oh, you are so young." <laughs> and he said, "Well, I, I I suppose, madam, that if you'll grant me time, I'll grow out of that." Um. But yes, we are to do it in public reading of scripture. A Read through the whole Bible. It takes about 72 hours. It's such a witness. There was, um, uh, there was another one which took place not so long back in, um, in Blackpool, I think it was, where they, where they just scheduled, and they just did it over, I think, a year. But they just scheduled people to go and read. He's to devote himself to preaching and to teaching. Again, in verse 13. And he's to be diligent in verse 15, giving himself fully, wholly, so that all might see his progress. As he demonstrates this standard, this worthy standard, as he demonstrates this worthy service, people look to him and see that example. And then he's told to be diligent by watching his life and watching his doctrine because we have to persevere and although there may come times when, when our lives have, are buffeted from either side when, when people suggest things which are interesting and, and we, or, or which, which, our cry, which our itching ears want to hear because it, it makes things easier for us to accept this or to accept that he's told to watch his life the example he's setting, the standard he's setting And to watch his doctrine as well. So, that I think is the challenge for us today. Are we going to listen to these worthy sayings that Paul has that Christ came to save sinners, of which I am the worst? That whoever desires to be an overseer, or a deacon, or a leader in the church, or a missionary, or an evangelist, or sharing Christ with their neighbor desires a noble task. That there is a value in godliness. That Christ remains faithful to us. And that we are saved by grace and by grace alone, not by anything we can do, not by any person we can become, not by any robes we can wear, is the grace of Christ which saves us and that alone and a worthy service as we hold up that worthy standard that others might look to us and one day God says to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord, we thank you that we have the benefit of your word shared to us. Um, in, in difficult times sometimes, but given to us that we might know your character and we might demonstrate that character out. Help us, Lord, to be the people you want us to be, to share that faith with others, to set a standard that others find hard to emulate, not because we are holy, but because you are holy. And Lord, help us to do that with an attitude of service, an attitude that enables us to serve and to not count the cost that we might have an excellent standing and a great and excellent assurance of our faith in you.